everybody. Welcome to the Spodcast, the fourth episode. It's the first time that we've had an episode where we haven't decided to change the name at least once. Maybe the I third episode was that. I'm not really sure. Yeah, we all hate the name, but we've decided mutually, and by decided mutually, I mean I made the graphics and decided not to make any more of them, uh, that it's going to be the Spodcast. So it's the Spodcast now. I regret ever making that joke, just for the record. It is I all your fault. I regret that Chris regrets making that joke. Wait, does Personally, that mean you like the name? Spodcast is the way forward. Oh yeah, absolutely. Spodcast, it's it's perfect. It really gets across the key things you need to know about the show. It's a podcast. There is a wordplay that happens. The wordplay doesn't make any sense. I forgot that Rutz was in the pro camp, although it does make sense upon reflection. I did have one good suggestion that, that somebody made, which was just to call it the Spod Pod and make it even less sensical to anyone. Oh my god, that's I mean, so awful. That seems like that would make you guys less happy, so I'm, I'm on board on principle. I'll just say again, it's bad for search engine optimization, because it just thinks you're misspelling podcast. See, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, like we're ever going to care, be big enough to care about search engine optimization. Not with that attitude. Dream big, Josh. I'm Josh. Joining me is uh, Chris Retzgarn and Alex again. Hello. Alex again. And uh, I I was assigned last uh, spodcast some very important uh, movie homework. So I went out and just like two hours ago saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So I'm all ready to talk about it. Except Glitch decided that he was going to go on his anniversary dinner with his wife instead of being here with us. Oh, what? So we're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 2 with spoilers next week, presumably when he gets back from that. It takes him a week to do an anniversary dinner. Presumably. It's not even his anniversary for another few days. That'll give you a week to come to terms with the idea that, you know, you can't always be surprised by what's coming at you in life. And sometimes a story, even if you know details about it, can be well told and interesting. And, you know, you can still appreciate it for what it is. Or to not watch the show. Or to see it. Or you've already seen it. Any of those are good and fine, I guess. How many people listen through, like, podcasts, archives, backwards? That's a good question. No one? Why would you do that? I don't know. But you know, now that we mentioned it, I'm sure someone has. If there's one thing I've learned putting content on the internet, it's that somebody will find the most perverse way to experience it. Well, I mean, that would be to, like, build some kind of voice modulator that takes your voice and makes it so that it's constantly the dolphin lover voice. All right, so... So, in lieu of the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 discussion, uh, I guess we can talk about some news. Um, is it the fun news, or is it the, like, exciting news of game releases? Uh, when was the last time we had exciting news in video gaming? Uh, you know, all those exciting game releases right, right before E3. Just right before. Oh, that, that's a good point. I don't think there's going to be a lot of news. Oh, speaking of E3, this is a news point. We will be uh, restreaming E3 conferences and talking over them in a really annoying fashion, just as we did for the past two years. We're going to do every conference except the Nintendo conference, because um, they don't usually like it when people restream their stuff. 
but everything else should be on the the Twitch thing. And besides, like we don't even know what Nintendo's doing this year as far as their conference plans at all. Aside from they will have a show, uh, and it will be sometime on Tuesday while I'm working. You know, it seems it seems equally likely that they're going to be announcing all of their cool next gen Switch releases, and that they don't have any like major Switch releases in the chamber. Uh, they're just like, what? We give you Zelda. That's going to keep you down for a few more years. We thought in the meantime, we'd work on the sequel to The Conduit, which we have here to show you today. <laughs> They'll probably talk about Super Mario, uh, the Super Mario Odyssey. What is Super Mario? Isn't that, isn't that like one of the ways that you could translate Mario from Italian? Because like there's, a, there's an Italian pizza place near where I live that's called Mario's. And when you say it, it sounds like Mario. Or I'm completely wrong and have just angered Italians. Teas but. in Italian, like it's not like you're you're like transliterating Chinese words into a Latin alphabet or something. They use the Latin alphabet. I then mean, I the Latin nothing. alphabet's kind of their thing, actually. A little uh, bit. As a person from an Italian background, please continue to make fun of us. It's fine. <laughs> We're going to get so many letters from the Italian Defamation League or whatever. Letters? What kind of stereotype is that? The Italian people don't know how to use email? Jesus Christ. I can vouch for that. See, I thought you guys were going a different path as far as, like, the Italian retribution to us messing up their culture horribly. I got nothing. I'm not touching that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just well, sort of waiting uh, for... There, I'm waiting for that. That was it. Keep going with that. Yeah. Keep, follow that instinct. Yeah, I, uh, hmm. Ah. Uh, yeah, Super Mario. Hmm. Very good. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we will be doing E3 stuff, and that'll be fun. And I'll be at all of them, because I'll be the one running the channel. And I have no idea who, which of the rest of these people will be joining me, if any of them. It, it would kind of suck if I were alone. I mean, I'll try. It's just the sound of a chair squeaking and ice clinking in the glass. And then somebody from Ubisoft says something like... And now, I know a lot of people are wanting something new from the studio, so this is the Assassin's Creed Watch Dogs crossover you've all been waiting for, where the <laughs> Animus gets hacked, and then you just, like, <laughs> make a kind of choking noise. The mic splutters out. I think it would actually be really funny to have the uh, the null set guys from Watch, Dog 2, Watch Dogs 2 just, like halfway through an Assassin's Creed game, crash the simulation and show up in it and just fuck everything up. Has anybody read a fanfiction where, like, the Nullsec guys join the Assassins? Probably. They'll be up to me. They had, they had to have done that, right? Like, like I'm, I'm weighing, like, how popular Assassin's Creed and, like, Watchdogs are to have crossover fanfics with the fact well, that, like, of course, there's got to be something like that. Well, they they bait it in the games, right? Like, the they make the point of Abstergo being a company that exists in the world of Watchdogs. So implicitly, the two games take place in the same world. So I'd be curious to see what happens as a result of that. Wow, how deep does the gripping Watchdogs canon go? The Ubisoft shared universe. <laughs> the, the crew takes place in the same universe, too. 
their Avengers meetup is uh, the uh, the Nullsec guys uh, join up with the crew guys, and they get a DeLorean with a a uh, a time machine modification on it that the Nullsec guys whip up, and they have to go into the past to bring uh, Ezio to the future to help him fight the fucking to to join up and fight the I don't know great big glowing blue superhuman being that is called Abstergo or something or whatever they do with that. Cause you have to have one of those in a superhero movie, especially a shared universe one. I don't, does Ubisoft own anything? I mean, I guess beyond good and evil. Oh wait. And of, of course, Vash from far cry has to show up. Um, yeah, I was just think I was just trying to figure out if Voss would be a, a assassin or a Templar or a, who gives a shit. I feel like he's become the Captain Jack Sparrow of video games. I don't know why, but I just feel like it. He'll he's make not it nearly appear. overexposed enough. He yeah, will be. he's oh, only been in one you game. Wait. Yeah, you wait. Fucking wait. They're going to bring him back for Far Cry 7. Which he'd is already like in development, the incidentally. <laughs> he'd be the Loki of the, of the Ubisoft-connected universe. He just shows up occasionally, and everyone goes, "Aw, it's him. We love him," even though he's not even necessarily the main bad guy. Yeah, and you know, while the first thing you think about when you think of Jack Sparrow is overexposed, uh, I, I actually totally get what Alex means. It's like if Oz is Jack Sparrow as he was conceived of in the sequels to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, is, is kind of like a a personality more than a character. And if that personality is wacky enough. But in kind of like a, a way that could be applied seriously, to, like where the characters are taking him seriously in a storyline, then that just kind of lets them get away with writing any kind of dialogue or action that would be like the most interesting in a scene without having to really worry about him as a consistent character. He wasn't even originally all that important, as I understand it. He was like the disc one final boss. And then like... um I don't remember the name of the actor who does him, but the actor who did him did such a phenomenal job that they started like working him into all the marketing materials, and it, be- it became like the face of Far Cry 3. I-, I just want to point out that you just used the phrase, Disc 1, Final Boss, and I-, I worry that there's a lot of 14-year-olds listening to this who have no idea what that means. I mean, it's on TV Tropes, so they probably heard of it. TV Tropes. <laughs> Fucking fogey. <laughs> it's all about the... I don't know what it's all about anymore. I'm old. On the topic of news, but uh, and probably stuff that'll be expanded upon uh, at E3, uh, Nintendo announced their like elaboration on their plans for their online service. Um, it's now moved back to 2018. I think originally they were saying it was going to start up in like August or September of 2017 as like a paid thing. Uh, now you're not going to have to pay for it until 2018, assuming that, you know, you have cause to pay for it because you're one of those lucky people who has managed to buy a Switch before then. Hi. Yeah, you... I think they, the, yeah, they explain that, uh, the games that you get will now actually be permanent. Well, permanent in the same way that it is on other platforms. Permanent right. as long as you have uh, it on the other. Not not like this. Like originally, they were saying that like, oh, you would get this game for this month, and then once that month was over, it would go away. And these are virtual console titles, not like like indie games or whatever you know, the, or a couple year old AAA titles like you get on uh, PS Plus and and 
Xbox Live Gold. Wait, that'd be like it's like a video game rental, but more expensive, and you only get one game per month. Yeah, and you don't get to pick the game. It's like it's like if Netflix shipped you uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call in New Orleans and then charged you like thirty dollars. They're still doing the uh, the phone app for your online play voice chat stuff, which is super dumb. Super duper dumb. You you guys saw the thing that the Hori is releasing, right, for uh, Splatoon? Yeah, yeah. The the third party like attachment where you yeah. attach it to your phone and then attach a headset to it. Doesn't the doesn't the Switch have a headset port? Uh, it doesn't have a headset port proper. It has a uh, it has a head well it has a headphone jack. But the problem is right. if you are having these fancy Hori uh, uh, full on ear not earbuds, what it, what it, cup cans? What do you call them? Cans, I guess. Cans you have, like, is usually what I've heard them called. Big sound canceling cans on your head, but all you're hearing is your phone audio. That's the audio of the voice chat. You can't hear the game. So what they had to do was take audio out of the game from plugging it. Basically, what it is is it's a little arrow shaped thing that looks like one of the squids from Splatoon, and one cord goes into your phone so it can communicate and, and handle the voice chat, and one cord goes into your uh, Switch controller uh, the, or the Switch console, I guess itself, and the and then a cord coming out of the top of it goes to your ears so that you can hear both the game sounds and right. the uh, voice chat sounds at the same time. And it's a monstrous, <laughs> horrible thing. You have to remember that Nintendo caters largely to a nostalgia audience, uh, and that one thing people are nostalgic for Nintendo is Nintendo crea- caters largely to an audience that doesn't exist. <laughs> is creating these Frankensteins of terrible 1991-era technology, where you have multiple pieces of third, second, first party colored plastic, which, when put together, will either allow you to play the game as intended, or will burn down your house. That's the experience Nintendo delivers to a new generation. Well, it's just like back in the day when you'd call your girlfriend on the phone and watch Jeopardy or whatever. <laughs> you know, just commentate. All those and... things that I did in the 90s. Uh, I actually do remember I had a uh, um, an original Game Boy, and I had all those fucking accessories on it. Uh, you know, attach a thing to give it like a, a thumbstick instead of a D-pad and move the A and B buttons over and those were just like things that you know, like little plastic things that actuated uh, the actual buttons on the device you know, they weren't plugged into the to the hardware and use electronics to tell it, oh, this is your input device. Uh, and a screen magnifier with a light on it, because remember, the Game Boy did not have a backlight until the Game Boy Advance in, like, 2001. Uh, no, Game Boy Advance SP, I think. No, wait, the yeah, original- it was the SP that had the backlight was the first one. Uh, the Advance Normal didn't have a backlight either, that's right. So it was, like, 2003 when they finally got one of those. <laughs> And an individual uh, yeah. carrying case for each of those things. Yeah. But but what I was getting at with the headphone jack thing is, like, if, if the Switch has a headphone jack, why can't this all be on the device? Like, I guess maybe it's it's a um, just an out jack instead of a combined, like, audio out and audio in thing. But even so, like, does the Switch itself have a built-in microphone? Like, that seems like that would still be more simple than having it on your phone sitting over next to you. It does not have a uh, mic. It's 
It seems really? like almost any forward-thinking common sense measure uh, that has become standard in this industry would allow them to get past whatever this is. Whatever problem this is. It's one of those things where it's like they're trying to solve a problem where it's kind of weird that it even exists. It's like reminding you that this is a thing that ha- other people are doing on purpose. Like, you're like, yeah, so we, we've uh, realized that some users need the switch to turn on when you press the button, so we've included a special port. And we're like, you're like, okay, well, wait, how are we supposed to turn it on otherwise? And it's like, well, I'll use the remote. What if we don't, what if we lose the remote? Well, then that's, uh, you know, we're not responsible for that. Like, uh, I was really hoping they'd nail it this generation, or at least do a halfway competent job at it, and so again, Nintendo stubbornly and ardently pulls defeat uh, from the hands of victory. Like, what, what the fuck? Not, mind you, that this will probably significantly affect the Switch in any meaningful sense, but at least not in the short term. In fairness, it is honestly their first attempt at actually trying to build a real online network, from what it sounds like. Um, they made baby steps in that direction with the 3DS. Uh, the the Wii U never really had any meaningful online stuff, but uh, if they really are trying to build this proper, I could see why that would take a while, and why it is a bigger job than I think they originally thought. Um, that said, the Switch as it stands right now, I don't know if you've messed with it, but it, it it almost doesn't have an interface. It's so basic. And I'm curious to see where they... T- like, I'm curious to see whenever they roll this update out whether it actually involves updating yeah, the They don't interface. even have a web browser for it yet, do they? There's no web browser. There's no media apps of any kind. Um, if you go, There's basically just a, a few basic configura- configuration options like airplane mode and screen brightness uh, and a couple controller settings, uh, the ability to go to the store, and all the store is is a list in chronological order of the 30-some-odd games that are out right now. Um, and then there's just a horizontal bar of all the games you have downloaded that you can launch, and that's it. That is pretty much the entirety of the interface. Um there, there is no frills at all, at all, um, and certainly nothing. There's nothing for social stuff, which is bizarre because you have a button on the on the uh, Joy-Con that lets you take a screenshot at any time, sort of like the share button on the PlayStation. But it's not like you have friends lists really with walls that like, like they exist, but there's there's so nothing there. It's not like I can load up a game. Like you've played, have you played Wii U games where like you can see. No. There are Wii U games where you load it up and you can see all the drawings people have done for the game and it feels like whenever you connect to the game you're looking at sort of this entire calculated built media I, I don't know how to describe it, but basically sort of like they integrate all the art and messages and everything everyone's done with the game into the background of the game when you're loading it and when you're selecting it on the menu and it feels like oh, this is this is a game that is connected to the internet, even if it's a single-player game, because I'm seeing all this shared community space around it. it There's none cohesive. of that here. Right. There's none of that here. It's like, I can take pictures, and it gets stored on my picture profile, that if you're friends with me, you can come and see my picture list by you know being friends with me, clicking on my name, and then going down to my album and clicking on my pictures. But it's not like you like highlight a game you and I have both been playing and automatically next to it pop up some of the screenshots all your friends have been playing with or whatever. Um, it doesn't do anything like that. Um, 
and I'm not saying that that's what they need to do. I'm just saying there's nothing like that at all. There's no, hey, Josh just got this achievement because there's no achievement system. There's no any sort of social aspect at all that exists in the game. And there's also just basic user interface stuff that's missing. Like, again, if you go to the store, I would expect there to be genre selection, what's on sale, new releases, upcoming releases. And I think right now all there is is, like, stuff released in the past two weeks, everything, and then coming soon. And that's it. There's no genres, there's no stores. So it's there's... basically the, the 3DS store again. The 3DS store has has stuff like that. The 3DS store has new releases and what's on sale and, hey, summer it's fun so game. It's so bad, though. It's so Oh, but it's miles above what the Switch has. It's miles above what the Switch has right now. You almost wonder if this, like, voice app thing is designed to somehow regulate the voice conversation in games because i know this is this is like the first time nintendo has this voice chat system and in the past you'd communicate in online nintendo games through pre-selected text chat um messages and you almost wonder if they're just trying to keep it as family friendly and regulated as humanly possible i don't know how but that's where my mind keeps going I mean, I wouldn't even mind that if they were open and honest about it and were like, look, we're a family game and to, to facilitate making sure that anybody can play any game uh, and to make sure that it's a family-friendly environment, we, we have decided to opt out of voice chat. And I'd be like, okay, I can see that. I I think that means it's going to limit the kind of games you can have, but I see that. But but then they released this giant Frankenstein's monster of an interface and I just... I wonder why they want to have it, but also not have it, is I guess where my mind goes. Like, I could see not having it, I can see having it, but what I can't see is, like, kind of having it, but also not really. And that that's where they are, and that's weird. The more we hear about the Switch, and the more we see about the way the Switch stuff is being rolled out, the more it looks like this thing was launched, like, six months earlier than than they probably wanted to. Yeah, and I don't know why that is. Um, there's there's no games. It's not like... <sighs> were they worried that... that you, you know, I wonder if it's if it's the Zelda thing. Well, I think they were maybe worried about like launching it in the fall-winter period where you've got all the other like console AAA stuff going on. I get the impression that maybe it was more tied to Zelda. I, I think that's that's a possibility too. I, well, I think it. that if they knew Mar- Mario is not going to be out till like November, right? We we, we know yeah. that it's it's pretty late in the year, uh, too close to to the end of the year to really get a console launched proper. Um, because if you're going to launch a new piece of hardware, you probably want to give time for software to sell during the Christmas season, which means you probably want it to come out, you know, August, September, October, not much later than that. Um, so I'm I'm thinking like they didn't want to release in August or October with with their only launch flagship title being Zelda, a game that would have come out six months prior on the Wii U, and people go, I already got a Wii U that I, I already have a machine that plays this Zelda. I don't need this thing. Um, but if they launched it concurrently with the Wii U Zelda, um, I think they they could capitalize on it. And if you're going to go to the store to pick up Zelda anyway, you, you might as well get a Switch or whatever. Yeah. Not that that solves the core problem of, you know, they don't got no games. Okay. I mean, Zelda was apparently a good game to launch with if you were only going to have one game on your system for six months, so... That's fair. 
And like the system does seem successful, at least given the demand for it, but I wonder if that's going to continue as they start to actually fucking properly fulfill that demand. And like, you know, uh, if we get to to winter and there aren't a whole lot more interesting games out for it, like, is it going to turn into a, maybe not a Wii U situation, but a GameCube situation? I, I don't know if you can have a GameCube situation anymore, because, like, the, the, the reason GameCube was a disappointment is that it was a tech-heavy game, a tech-heavy system that, that tried to push power and failed largely and didn't compete with yeah. the other game systems that it was trying to compete directly against. The Switch, I mean, Nintendo's been operating away from competing directly against Microsoft and Sony for a while, and, I mean, it, they are competing in the same space, but I, I don't think you'll ever see Nintendo really trying to figure out how to phrase this, because they want Wii numbers again. They want millions and millions and millions of units right. moves. But they're, they're not going to push, like, high-end power anymore. Right, but I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is the GameCube was a disappointment, not so much because it didn't you know have a bunch of great games or sell a fair number of units, but because it was a disappointment next to the PS2 and, and the other games of its era. Right, The PS2 became the dominant console for all time, and the GameCube was yeah. like, oh, that's nice. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to see that again because this switch is not trying to be better and bigger than the PS4, but it also is. So I don't know. My, my point's kind of invalid because Nintendo wants to do Wii numbers of, of unit sales, but they're also not comparing their numbers, I think, to <laughs> PS4 anymore. They just want to have tens of millions of you know units sold, hundreds of millions of units sold. I'm always still confused about exactly like what they're trying to do with the Switch 2 because I know portability is a huge thing, but and I have seen people with Switches out and about, but it's just like they're playing by themselves. It's not like that multiplayer portable experience that they seem to be selling in the trailers and things like that. All this superfluous gimmicky shit to it. Like all you need like like the I, I figured when they announced it like that the I felt that the the like oh it's a console that's also portable and like it's a tablet that's also uh something you can plug into your TV and play in full screen like I figured that was like all you needed but then they loaded on all this like ridiculous like oh we got this HD rumble stuff which is apparently cool but I can't imagine like what kind of real like big game use is going to come out of that. Um, and, and they're back to fucking motion control shit again. And like, who cares? It's a portable console with motion controllers. Like what? I mean, it's a switch you can take with you wherever you or a switch. It's a, it's a Wii you can take with you wherever you go. And there's, there's a degree of appeal in that, right? Like the, the whole one, two switch or whatever party game it's not just that it's a fun party game. It's a party game that I could literally pack up and take with me and go to a party, and and we can now play this Wii party game right there but without having to plug anything game. into a TV. I, I I don't know. I don't own it. But but my point is like, I, I I get the appeal of of having some of the the Wii motion control stuff that gives it that sort of wider appeal. Um, because uh, now it's a Wii that you can just take take with you to grandma's and have fun there or whatever. Um, with the whole family, so there, there's a degree of appeal there that that works. But like, I understand there's there's appeal to it. My question is like, is that worth the cost of 
these incredibly over-engineered controllers kind of have to do everything. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would more defer to to Alex's point with regard to the multiplayer aspect. Like, I I brought my Switch with me to dinner tonight. Me and my wife went out to an, an Asian restaurant, and I was joking, like, let's play Mario Kart. But then you're sitting there in a restaurant, and you're like, you're not gonna bust out a, a, a mini TV and two handheld controllers and play Mario Kart in the middle of a restaurant unless you're just like the most awkward human being who's ever lived. And There's I, that I, level of social comparison where it's like it's like you've got your toddler like watching uh, Peppa Pig on a tablet in the restaurant and you know everybody's kind of like okay you know it's a kid. A kid can't just sit still for five minutes. You know a kid's got to have something to entertain them. And it's it's not that there's anything wrong with playing a video game while waiting for your food but like there's still this this kind of unconscious shared social judgment of it that like tells you I'm an adult I should just sit here quietly conversing that's like that that's what's expected of me in this context or yeah. you can bust out your phone which can be subtle and you could be playing a game and no one knows it exactly cuz cuz you have the appearance of just being sort of aloof and just like, oh, yeah, let me just use my thumb. Just maybe this is an important work email. Maybe I'm trading stocks. Maybe I'm <laughs> trading stocks in my important work emails while actually, like, you're touching butts and getting points for touching butts in the right order. And nobody knows that. I know it. But um, I, I think part of the problem is that there's socially acceptable contexts for playing games. And I feel like maybe games already exist in those spaces. Um, like the the switch will make it easier to bring uh, a Wii style party game to a party, but we already are comfortable with games that you know with Switch game or with uh, Nintendo games at parties, multiplayer experiences at parties, and then you know it makes it easier to play games at home. But you already have game systems at home. It, I, I feel like a lot of the promise of the Switch was you can now play games, full console games, in places you wouldn't have expected to before. But I think what I'm encountering is like. There's not a lot of places that it's socially acceptable to go play a full-on immersive console game where you couldn't before. Like, I, I, I tried on the airplane when I went to on the airplane to Sweden. Um, I, I, I tried playing it. Um, I had to turn it off in part because the screen gets dark, but it doesn't get that dark. And on an overnight flight, they dim the cabin, and all the little TVs on the backs of the seats can dim real dark and, and get, you know, so that you're not bothering your neighbor. But the Switch, even at its darkest, is still a pretty bright little TV. And I felt like an asshole having like a little 7-inch TV blaring Mario Kart next to the people uh, next to me who were trying to sleep. Um, and again, it's, just, it's this weird social boundary thing where, yeah, it's great that I can take Mario Kart with me wherever I go, but you end up invading other people's space by just sort of declaring, this is now Mario Kart place. And, and that's something I think the Switch is an interesting problem the Switch is going to have to overcome. You know, for me, it's always a question of how, how how granular is my gaming time, really? Am I okay sitting down and playing a video game for five minutes, and then two minutes, and then eight minutes, and then twelve minutes? Or do I want to set aside a larger block of continuous gameplay? And I find that with any kind of game that's designed for use on a, the console that has a level of depth and complexity and immersion that warrants the big screen and the dedicated controller, I don't actually have a lot of interest in, like, dipping in here or there between entrees. Like, that, that, that doesn't actually have any appeal to me. Yeah. 
No, that's that's a good point. Um, I I ended up picking up a couple games that are those sorts of real big epic games. Um, and then I picked up uh, Puyo Puyo Tetris. I have put way more time into Puyo Puyo Tetris on my Switch than any other game because every other game requires a level of commitment on the 15, 30, 60 minute scale. Um, whereas Puyo Puyo Tetris I can pick up and play. So like if I am like sitting in an airport, it's way easier to just grab Tetris than it is to commit to I'm going to beat a Zelda dungeon while sitting in an airport. Like you, you have so many things going on while you're at an airport that, you know, you're going to have to be paying attention to the time of when you, they start boarding and how much time you have left to get to the gate. You can't like commit to that. You can't commit to a Zelda dungeon, but you can commit to a three minute round of, of Puyo Puyo pretty easily. Yeah. Can you imagine unpacking your Switch, setting up, and, like, loading a Skyrim save, then fast-traveling oh, to a dungeon, then loading the dungeon, uh, and then doing absolutely anything before, hey, your roommate comes home, and now you can both go to the restaurant? Yeah. It's it's sort of the same problem to some extent the PSP, or, no, the PS Vita ran into. Because um, the Vita had, you know... It was basically a really, really powerful uh, handheld as well that ran weird remakes and ports and sequels to PS4 and PS3 games. So you ended up with like that Uncharted game, and or or, or the, God of War was the on the PS Assassin's Creed one. Oh yeah, that's right. But like, you you can't port that home theater experience to your pocket. It just doesn't work. Um, and, and that's, I think, going to be a problem for the Switch, where you're going to end up with games that are either designed to be the portable fun, happy fun, travel time games, or you're going to end up with games that are designed for a sit-down experience that you will never want to load if the game is out of the dock. Or if you don't have several hours. And the weird thing is, it's not clear how much of this is stuff that we don't understand yet, how much of this is stuff that, like, Nintendo has a 12th-dimensional chess game that's only going to become apparent in, like, history... Like, when we're looking back on how Nintendo completely revolutionized the market, how much of it is Nintendo not really understanding how the market developed, and how much of it is just Nintendo playing their own game, and us not understanding that they're getting exactly what they wanted all along, which just wasn't anything we knew to expect. And, like, eight years from now, they're going to announce their next console, which is the home console you can play phone games on. Finally, a $300 machine that plays Candy Crush. Except I don't think anybody actually plays Candy Crush anymore. What's what's the new thing? Probably some Clash Royale thing. Yeah. You have to admit, the phone games are like escalating in complexity. Like the the, the killer app phone games that everyone's playing are growing more and more what people would call game like. So like the accusation is that like phone games aren't games, right? That like that's which which is bullshit because they are. They're just a different kind of video game than, like, the guy who's been playing the GameCube, then, like, he escalated to po playing on the PlayStation 2, and then he escalated to only playing PC games on his maxed-out battle rig uh, against people who are equally insane. Like, what, what he thinks a video game is. Yeah, I, that, that, I don't know. That's just kind of the, the pattern... <laughs> The pattern of starting out with something simple and childish, and then immediately trying to get as far away from it as possible, out of perception of whatever is supposed to be cool right now. What 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 do my peer group think is cool right at this moment? <laughs>
And like sort of from this perspective of games is like hyper competitive, managing resources, you know, based on kind of like a like a, a violent, almost mischievous expression of player versus player, player versus enemy. Like looking at like phone games, like it, it was always supposed to be this derisive thing, like oh, you know, the, the, these games are really like stripped down, straightforward. But I, I feel like phone games are actually starting to. Like and when I, I say phone games, I don't just mean like you know stuff like Fire Emblem. I mean like stuff like that is has like a really wide range of saturation against even with people that don't traditionally consider themselves gamers. Like is starting to resemble more the kinds of games that are popular among people who do consider themselves gamers. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Then that's where I agree with you 100. percent Like it's it's turning short term short session gameplay into what we consider to be like, I guess, more fully realized game experiences, um, except they're slowly kind of grabbing those non-gamer audiences. And it turns out, hey, they like games too. They just don't have the time or money to sit down and, you know, play a console game, which again is where I think the Switch doesn't grab that audience. That was a much more precise uh, and concise way of placing that, yes, (laughs) of expressing my point. Uh, yeah, exactly. I th- I think probably possibly because I- I've sort of seen some like because uh, you know I I have friends who sort of would play those phone games and now like instead of yeah and didn't really play other kinds of video games and I think it's almost kind of like the barrier to entering like traditional gaming was really high. But the barrier to entering these phone games was very low, and people were like, oh, you know, look at these scrubs playing Candy Crush or whatever. And then gradually, this very large percent of the population that's been captured by this kind of straightforward game is, like, learning game language. And and is is, is intuitively grasping games that I- include more complexity, even in, like, these short sessions. I think that's very interesting, because it's, like, kind of a, a quantum leap in game literacy. I think I think what we're going to be seeing in like a decade or so is going to be very interesting because of that. Well, we, that was our first news item this week (laughs) of three, not counting the E3 stuff. Um, Should we move on to the next news item? Okay. Sort of a similar vein to Nintendo. And Oh, they also announced the pricing back up uh, $4 a month. I got nothing. Um, and then like eight dollars for a three month membership and twenty dollars for a twelve month membership, which I think is um one or two dollars less. Like uh, the one month is like one or two dollars less a month than PS Plus and the Xbox Live Gold stuff. I think those are like five or six dollars a month. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but pretty similar but cheaper, which feels right given what you're getting from the Nintendo online features set. And with that, we can move on to uh, Steam finally uh, expounded upon what the heck is going on with Steam Direct and what the fee is going to be and what they're going to do to improve curation. Uh, so first off, the uh, the big news that is coming out of this is that the fee to publish a game on Steam will remain at $100 which is a good thing in my opinion. Like they originally 
They were talking about Steam Direct was a thing they were thinking about, and they were going to do at some point. The uh, the numbers they threw out there was between one hundred dollars and five thousand dollars as like hypothetical things they were considering. Um, yeah, so this is the very lowest end of the thing. And, and in their announcement, they even said that, and I quote, the community conversation really challenged us to justify why the fee wasn't as low as possible and to think about what we could do to make a low fee work. Uh, so in the end, we've decided we're going to aim for the lowest barrier to developers pos- and as possible with a $100 recoupable publishing fee per game while at the same time work on features designed to help the store algorithm become better at helping you sift through games. I'm I'm not sure they actually explained still what recoupable means here. It, it's implied uh, that we'll get it back. Oh yeah, go ahead, Ritz. No, it's it's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I was no 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 I was listen I had at my fingertips some kind of really awful chicken coop related pun, but I'll be honest I'm 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 completely reamed I I, I couldn't. I couldn't make it happen. Thank you for rescuing us from that, Chris. <laughs> um, it, they have not described how it is recoupable in the sense of, is, is there a point at which you earn that back, or is it slowly over time? Is it a percentage of... like They have not described how you get that money back, but we know it's recoupable, so we know in theory you can make that $100 back. It's not like... And the reason that the recoupable is there and the reason that that's important is... So, backing up a bit, there is a difference between the current system and this system. The current system is a flat $100 fee to become a developer eligible to put games on Greenlight. That is a one-time fee of $100, and it is a fee. They take that money and they give it to Child's Play, uh, the charity. That is just a $100 pass through the gate to be able to make games on Greenlight. And then once you've paid your $100, you can put games up on Greenlight. They then have to get voted up to get on the service. Um, the change here is instead of paying a $100 fee as a developer to get your games up on a service, you are now paying um, $100 per game to instantly have your game available on Steam through Steam Direct. Um, that includes no discoverability. That, that, that basically is just you are now you have a Steam store page and can sell your game. Um, but that's $100 per game, which is next to nothing if you're a big developer or a big name developer. Um, but it does mean that it. I think it's going to further calcify the difference between the more commercially minded games you're going to be seeing on Steam and the more experimental small scale stuff you're going to see on itch.io. You won't see with a $100 per game fee uh, stuff like, you know, uh, a lot of kitty, kitty horror show stuff wouldn't fly if every game she made cost $100 to put on the platform. Um, so she doesn't I think have them on the platform at this point anyway, though, so... Right. Well, well, but that's what I'm saying, is it just further calcifies that that sort of divide between itch.io as yeah. the smaller-scale art house game studio, or game studio, game publishing platform, and Steam as sort of the bigger, more commercial game platform. Um, where, and, and the reason that that's important is that Greenlight was always this weird middle ground of Eh, pay us a hundred bucks to prove you're serious, and then you can just whatever ideas you have, you can keep submitting stuff till it gets through. Uh, whereas this is basically every game you make needs to be able to make at least a hundred dollars, and we're not even sure what that means yet because we don't know how you can recoup that one hundred dollars. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it is going to result in pushing Steam even further towards, uh, I think, a bit more um, a, a bit away from the itch.io stuff. And it's also, I would argue, probably not going to do very much to curb asset flips. Asset flips, people, the studios that do that have money to buy assets. 
they have money to spend a hundred dollars to get a game up on Steam. Um, that's, well, that's I mean, not... that was the thing that that like that was the argument against the higher fees is like you know uh, these guys have the money to hire lawyers to harass YouTubers that that expose their games for being horrible asset flips. Like these guys have money anyway. A five thousand dollar fee isn't going to significantly discourage that. In fact, if it serves to make the general public feel like the platform is better curated, then a $5,000 fee might actually make them more money in the long run. Yeah. Uh, The other big stuff from this announcement was uh, that they're going to be expanding the features that uh, Steam curators have, and we're not talking about like hiring a bunch of people to look at the games and figure out if they're worthy of Steam or should be higher in the algorithm or whatever. We're talking about the uh, the current curator system where you open your Steam page, scroll down a bit, and you see Steam curators talking about whether or not this game has tits in it. Uh, <laughs> which is, I, I believe, a very um, charitable view of the current state of the Steam curation system. Um, they're going to allow curators to make lists. So, in the like right now, when you're a curator, you can ju- you just basically have these are games that I have selected in this list for whatever, like, in this, like, that I have mentioned as in my curation thing for whatever reason. And you can't, like, categorize those or separate those into different things. Like, these are the games I say you shouldn't play, and these are the games I say you really should play, or something like that. Uh, It's all just one thing. Uh, You're going to have some kind of option to feel like to to categorize those and split those off um, into their own thing. They're also going to put together some kind of system, and they haven't really explained what this is going to look like to allow, like, I guess, popular curators to more easily request and get uh, pre-release access to uh, upcoming games so that they can, like, I guess, review them in some sort of something resembling the way that uh, review publications do now um, review games before they come out, which I don't know if I, I see that much value in that. Like, I'm, I'm struggling to, like, I guess... If curators became more of a big deal and more of a, a reputable thing that I like actually cared about, and it wasn't just like ninety lists of these games don't let you change the FOV options, so don't buy them. Oh, uh, you know, like I, I guess if it kind of they were able to foster an environment of critical discourse, even on the level of your average like scored video game publication review uh, in the curator system, maybe that would be a bigger deal, but like, I I don't know. I, I guess all... I feel like the main problem with the Steam curation system is that in some ways it's like by being buried in the Steam interface, it's like three or four levels down and each of those levels, like in my computer slash internet gaming culture experience, and on each of those levels, I'm having a conversation about what games to play to the point where by the time I arrive at the curation list, I've already got more recommendations than I know what to do with. I just always think like there's so many other places to 
uh, read about different people's opinions on games that Steam's kind of the last place I go. And a lot of the curators have their own websites anyways, where I can get to know them a little better and like they have other material besides what's available on Steam to just read and, and get to know them and see if their opinions are like mine. I don't know. I just like, I don't go to Steam for that. I don't even browse the store hardly anymore. Yeah. Maybe I want to know about like cool old adventure games that Pushing Up Roses recommends, right? But the reason that I trust Pushing Up Roses recommendations on cool old adventure games is that I watch her show and I'm on her Twitter and like she's a part of my internet experience. So it's like at some point she's going to stop and make a list of stuff on Steam and actually haven't checked to see if she has. And what, how helpful is that to me? Yeah, uh, they they kind of seem to be aware of this problem from this announcement. They're saying that they're going to make it easier for curators to like link uh, off-site stuff, like YouTube videos where they review a game to like that game recommendations, that you can see it on the Steam website and stuff like that. Um, although that still, to me, seems like, well... I'll probably just be paying attention to their YouTube channel if I care about what they think. So why do I need a Steam curation list too? The idea, as I understand it, is that is this, it's a classic Valve thing, right? They want um, to crowdsource the effort of findability. They do not want to come up with algorithms. They do not want to write software that would require spending money on software engineers. And it would require having a, a software development organization that isn't a brain trust and a bunch of people doing fuck off, whatever they want, which is apparently how valve works. Um, they would need to actually have like plans and, and direction and they don't want to do that. So instead they came up with this thing where let's crowdsource it. And the idea is you will subscribe to the, five, 10, 15 uh, people on the internet that have curator lists that you know you like. And then we could just sort of look at a cross section of that and find the games that either would be in genres that you own or play a lot of that have been recommended by your curator friends that you don't own yet, or maybe things that are recommended by multiple versions of your curators. Basically just do some basic machine learning, the cross sec, uh, doing cross section analysis of, you know, what have you played? What have you played the most of? What have you bought the most of and what do all of your curators that you follow recommend and then we can generate that and serve that up for you um it's the closest they've come to sort of trying to figure out how to solve this problem um that said i think they've got another problem um that they have kind of sidestepped with this announcement which is that aside from youtube personalities a lot of curator teams are gimmick accounts and i don't know what to this has always been a problem on steam they added well, like, Steam reviews and it's like 100% gimmicks all the time. <laughs> I, I loaded up Steam just now to see what uh, what um, curators it would recommend for me. And I have Waifu Hunter. I will tell you if a video game has attractive anime ladies in it. Um, it has suggested for me slash R slash ultra wide master race group. Games that work with the ultra wide 21 by 9 monitors. Um, Trump giveaways, I don't know what that has to do with Donald Trump, but apparently it's a community that will bring you honest and professional <laughs> reviews, but it's, I don't know if it's a joke thing or what. Critiquing dogs, many recommendations, such wow, very detailed. Like, just, it's it's all gimmick shit. It's, it's useless. It's all useless. Um, and nothing that they have described makes this shit not useless. And... 
you know, we're, we're in this, like, who watches the Watchmen situation of, like, okay, so you're not going to, you're not going to curate the games, which I agree with, but you're going to, but in order to solve discoverability, you're going to have this totally uncurated list of curators. Well, now, now instead of having, a, having the problem being that there's too many games that you can't find, now the people who are supposed to be telling you what games are good is this chaotic list. So now I need a curation list of curators that don't suck so that I can actually find games that are good. And it's just this terrible approach to everything. And nothing in their announcement has, has convinced me that they have any interest or, or knowledge on how to solve that problem. Like Alex was saying, I don't use the curator lists because they're useless. And until they are useful, and not just not just more places. The, the update talks about, oh, we're going to let curators put their little videos and little sidebars next to all the games we're selling or whatever. I don't want to see more of the curators. I want to see better curators doing better work. And there's nothing that they're doing that solves that problem. Sorry, I went on a rant. I mean, I, it, it is pretty much how we all feel about Steam right at this point, right? Like, it's really infuriating that Valve stubbornly refuses to actually just uh, like do anything other than, oh, we we definitely can find a fucking we if we just hone this algorithm down and get this algorithm just perfectly right, we'll get it. From a cross-section of the curators recommended by 12-year-old boys you'll never meet, uh, that one guy you watched on YouTube that one time, the video game you got as a gift on Steam, and the 14 other video games you got as part of a bundle so that you could pick up Shadow of Mordor for $3, we've determined that the game that you should play next is All the Right Seasons by Nickelback. Enjoy! Uh, let's move on to our last bit of news. Uh, this is somewhat interesting. The French website GameCult did a little bit of digging into the web server of a company called Deck9 Games uh, and found a screenshot that appears to be from a Life is Strange prequel. Now, Deck Nine Games is a new studio that uh, teased recently that they were working on a narrative-driven title from a leading AAA publisher to be announced at E3 2017. Um, and later digging uh, from other users had turned up um, a number of other uh, images that looked very much like it would be a Life is Strange prequel to the extent of, like, you have concept art of Chloe, and you can very clearly see the character models from Life is Strange in it. So it sounds, and none of this has been confirmed, and those images have been pulled from that website, but it sounds as if it's possible that uh, Square Enix has given the license for a Life is Strange prequel to this other studio, and they're going to be working on this uh, prequel, which would apparently be uh, a direct prequel to the original like first season Life is Strange uh, story that would focus on Chloe and Rachel Amber. And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if that, like, part of the problem of Life is Strange, in my opinion, and these are sort of somewhat story spoilers, I guess, but I really hated the ending, and it was kind of a downer, and I feel like anything involving this prequel, also, like, you know, getting into kind of vague spoiler territory here, is also going to be a downer, 
because you have to get Chloe from whatever point she starts to the point where she's at at the beginning of Life is Strange, which is not a good place. Yeah, I, I mean, the obvious comparison is Firewalk with me um, in terms of you're you're playing the person that is is deceased at the beginning of the main series, and it's kind of a prequel slash sequel. Um, and getting to know the, the the character that basically was just a plot motivator in the main franchise, um, I I like that. I like that it's continuing the the Twin Peaksy nods. Um, I'm I'm also curious to see how it works in terms of based on what we've seen. The rumor is you play as Rachel Amber and not as Chloe. Um, I'd be curious to see how that works. I, I'd be curious. I, I would like her to not have magical powers, for one. I would like this to be a more yeah. story-driven game. It, I feel it would like be... the easiest way they could do it is to give her magical powers. Although, if like if it's her and Chloe, and Chloe, like, how do you... Uh, you can't reconcile the idea that, oh, by the way, my other friend also had magical powers, and I never told you. Yeah, yeah, that's... There's no way that would work. The other, the other problem is... Um, I think it was Patrick Klepek uh, on Twitter that I saw pointed out that um, one of the one of Chloe's main concerns throughout Life is Strange is that Rachel Amber really did just pack up and leave without without telling Chloe yeah. where she was going. So it's implied there's there's distance between Chloe and Rachel Amber by the time that that happens. Um, so you're going to have to, it can't even be a nice romantic story, right? Like it's not going to be this, this lovely quiet romance because it has to kind of be, be held at a distance. Right. Um, It just, it doesn't feel like a story that needs to be told. It's, it's kind of like rogue one in that way where, you know, rogue one was decent as a movie, but I don't feel like it was a story that anyone was like clamoring to, to be blown up into a movie. Rogue One was not decent as a movie. It was completely recut, and I want to see the original. But I just I I hope they know what they're doing. I hope they have a clear vision in their head if this really is a prequel. Um, and supposedly this is again all of this is rumors. This might be the one Life is Strange yeah, other game we're getting. Yeah, assuming that this is but, actually like what's going on here. But the other rumor is that this is a prequel, and that the the don't nod guys, uh, the don't nod team, are still also developing a proper Life is Strange sequel. That we have right. no idea what that's going to look like. Again, that's the rumor. For all we know, we know that there I is more Life like is Strange they've coming. S- they've said that don't like like don't nod has confirmed. I feel like they've confirmed that they are working on a Life is Strange two. They but that don't- it won't involve the characters from the original. That's what the rumor is. All that Don't Not have confirmed is they had that YouTube video, um, that or YouTube video, that Twitter video, that where the developers of Don't Not said, more Life is Strange is coming. And that's all they said. And that they were excited to show us. Now, I don't know if that means that they are developing a game or just that they gave their baby over to another team and they're excited to have us see this game about the prequel. I don't know. I'm really optimistic about the the idea of a prequel, actually, because, A, with time travel, you never know what kind of stuff could have been messed up or worked around, which is, like, sometimes a bad thing because, you know, primer is the only thing to get time travel, right? But, like, it's... And I like that it's a downer. I, I like... And that's where I guess Josh and I disagree because, like, I also liked Logan for that reason, too, as we talked about last week. But it's... 
it's a story. These are stories that have not been told in games yet. And I think that obviously there's a lot of bias around like the stories of teenage girls being interesting to some people, but I'm really interested in, I was always interested in Chloe's story. I thought Max was kind of like, whatever, you know, she's supposed to be. Um, and like, it's Rachel Amber always seemed like a very Chloe type person as well. And so if we can get more of that, like I'm on board. I like, I don't mind downers as a general principle. Like my issue in this particular case is like, this is a, the prequel to a downer that has to be a downer to make sense with, with its predecessor like it's downer on top of downer being teenagers hard it's just all downhill all the time you say that somewhat in jest but i i I actually kind of agree because like one of the reasons that fire walk with me works if it works at all and we can debate whether that's a good movie or not but like it, it takes um oh god what the laura palmer story and sort of uses it to explore a lot of the same thematic ideas but in a different context and I would argue that maybe you could do the same thing here. You could focus on Rachel Amber and yeah, you know where the story's going and it's going in this one particular direction, but a lot of the core thematic elements could still work and, and resonate really strongly because the game, even though, even though it was about Max specifically and Chloe and Max's relationship in particular, um, you could look at that sort of, a, a lot of the sort of, you could explore a lot of the queer undertones a little bit more explicitly, I think, in this game, and still have it be this sort oh, yeah. of awkward journey of self-discovery. Um, even if it is still tragic, I think that's that's potentially worth exploring. Um, but that said, I, I don't. Again, I don't know anything about this new developer. I don't know if I should have faith in them in exploring those topics, or if this is going to be like. Because the one picture we have is the picture where the tree's on fire, and I just have this horrible vision of Rachel Amber has fire powers because she's passionate <laughs> and and or whatever and that's just going to be her thing oh. and and it's going to be an adventure game where you solve puzzles with fire I, I can see this going very sideways very quickly but i also see the potential in the idea as being very strong and i'm hoping for the best but preparing for the worst yeah if nothing else it'll be cool to see uh chloe sort of mature into who she was from a little bit more happy of a person i guess into who she is at the beginning of the uh of the main game I mean, I'm happy to to have Ashley Birch in anything at this point, so... That, that's the other thing. We don't know how big of a game this is. Um, this might be a 400-day style one-off, uh, which would, which might actually even be cooler. That's true. Yeah, that, that would be mm. p- more palatable to me, I think. Uh, it's something a bit longer than 400 days, and, and probably more impactful than 400 days ended up being. But, uh, yeah... yeah. I, I, I'm still kind of bitter about that. Uh, well, that wraps up our news for the week, which we spent like an hour on. Good lord. Uh, Rutskarn, you wanted to talk about mud. I do want to talk about mud, yes. So are we, like, how viscous is this mud? Uh, in my experience thus far, extremely viscous. And it's somewhat unclean? And it's definitely left a stain. I'm referring, of course, to multi-user dungeons. Uh, Alright, so here's the deal. I've basically been spending every waking moment of my life uh, doing something work-related or just 
responsibility related lately. Uh, and I, all of my, I haven't actually been getting, having a chance to go out and have tabletop games, uh, which means that I've been edging closer and closer to insanity, uh, with regards to what I consider an acceptable role playing experience. It turns out that if you deprive me of uh, my regular table games for too long, I start considering forbidden rituals, which have been basically banished from the the public consciousness of games for decades. I'm picturing the that that, that Simpsons riff on The Shining, and it's like no D12s and no player sheets make Rutzgarn something something. That's basically it. It's just like I'm I'm craving the experience of telling a story in kind of a a creative, collaborative fashion. Uh and it's also like so I, I really like games where players are sort of willing to lose stuff. You know, where there's there's stakes and there's there's drama and, and you know, people are willing to kind of because, you know, the, the the ground state of even tabletop role playing is power fantasy. Uh, that's, that's all well and good. And I like, I love me a good power fantasy. Absolutely. But I also really enjoy, uh, having the occasional campaign or group, which is centered around a kind of game where kind of experiencing a wider range of emotion, uh, and telling a, a wider range of story kind of happens. Like one of my favorite RPGs for, for one-off plays, Durance, which is, 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 a, I, I've, I've talked about here several times, which is, it's a game where you play prisoners and uh, employees in like a prison in like a space future colony, and like the game is all about losing. It's all about either sacrificing the principles that make you who you are, or dying, and it's a really fun experience because of that. I, well, maybe fun's not the right word, but it's it's you know you walk <laughs> out of endurance game knowing that this is something you're going to remember. Ah. Uh, so I've been looking for We've that, and it. he killed my evil preacher. Yes, I did. So I, I was looking around for a way to sort of get into that and and have some interesting role playing experiences. And at first, I thought, well, I could find a nice free to play MMO uh, where with an RP server, but you know there weren't really many available. Uh, and also, the thing about the thing about role playing servers and MMOs is. In fact, any kind of video game that carries with it a role-playing community. H- have any of you guys uh, done any role-playing in video games? Oh, you know, yes. Like a- I was pretty active in Star Wars Galaxies back in the day, but that was kind of a unique situation as far as MMOs go, I feel like. Right. I poked my head some Gary's Mod stuff. Gary's Mod stuff, that's interesting. Yeah, there's this like Harry Potter one. Very interesting. Wow, is is that like is there like a a central storyteller, like a, a game master or It seemed pretty chaotic, but there was a guy doing a great Snape impression and I was entertained <laughs> by that. What are you kids doing here? Well, we fucking go to school here. <laughs> I love that. Uh... Yeah, that's just about what it was. <laughs> but yeah, the interesting thing about like video games though is that there's the role-playing, which is all, like, ephemeral and creative, and then there's the mechanics, which are objective. And in tabletop gaming, the mechanics are there to, like, create a certain kind of role-playing, but with video games, it's a little more abstract, where it's, like, the mechanics are there to self-select 
a certain like kind of role player. Uh, and what I sort of decided was that, you know, since there aren't many RPGs like Star Wars Galaxies, which have all these, like, crafting and performing and, like, kind of, uh, th- these kind of, uh, simulating a lifestyle mechanics, uh, ultimately, the kind of role players I'm gonna end up with are the kind of role players who want to have all these kinds of, qu- who want to, to orient their, RP experiences around, like, the standard MMO questing and mechanics, which, you know, to be honest, don't really interest me all that much. So I'm like, where can I get a role-playing experience where the mechanics self-select for people who want what I want? And uh, I found myself wandering down the back alley of multi-user dungeons. So what these are, for those of you who don't know, is they're kind of like a text-adventure MMO, uh, like you have like a command prompt line. You can type in like north, south, east, west. Like you create your character using this command prompt, and it's like I, generally the character creations tend to be locked in this very 1990s model of what a role playing game's mechanics should be, or there's all these kind of arbitrary systems that are do not intuitively flow into one another, which match to like a table somewhere that the GM is looking at. Uh and where everything is based on like every specific action you can want to take has a discrete skill associated with it. And God help you if you have the wrong skill. Like, uh I'm trying to forget think of what it was. Like, there was, I was playing Seventh Sea, which is a game that I think was pretty popular in the 90s. Uh, and at some point, I wanted to follow someone, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna roll my stealth skill to follow this guy. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't roll the stealth skill, you roll the shadowing skill. Which I didn't put any points in whatsoever. Glitch was, was actually recently, uh, sharing my frustration with a, uh, or sharing his frustration with me about a, uh, a Star Wars RPG game he was playing where he built this, uh, hostage negotiator kind of character, uh, with a lot of, like, negotiation skill, and he tried to enter a negotiation with someone, uh, and basically, like, intimated that, oh, you know, if you kill this person or whatever, you know, your boss isn't going to be very happy and the DM, like, Let stopped me guess. Said, it no, suddenly wait, became an intimidate check, which he didn't have points no, in. No, it became a coercion check instead of a negotiation check and he had no points in coercion, uh, and he got really pissed off that, about that's, that. Yeah. That's yeah, the classic exactly. example, is like, that, that, that fine line between bluff diplomacy and intimidate. Uh, have any of you guys actually played a multi-user dungeon? I want to ask that going in first. <sighs> don't think I have. I feel there were a couple times when I was thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to get into this like fucking ancient M- muds with like player accounts from 20 years ago on them. Uh, but I don't think I ever like actually took the leap and, and tried to do that. I am an old man. I used to hang out in IRC in high school. Um, IRC tended to have a lot of muds running in it. Um, so while hanging out in chat with other people, I would play muds. I never played them particularly seriously. Um, I, well, there's you know, a spectrum. But, well, I was never involved in any hardcore role-playing modes. I'll put it that way. I was involved right, in more right. of the go north, go north, go north, kill goblin, get gold, go to town kind of thing. Not right, so much right. the the actual role-playing run by a DM. Like There was a DM in the sense that there was an admin who would do stuff. Um, 
but and and occasionally set up you know change the story change things but it's not like we all got together on like friday nights and and played the mud together it's a mud free zone over here <laughs> no tracking mud keeping it clean clean living <laughs> well i i will say that yeah i'm going to double down on the felt unclean part which i'll get to in a minute uh the point is uh it some of these are kind of insane and the premise itself is a little bit insane in that, like, you know, the, these are run on old school servers where you actually need to, like, either do some complicated port forwarding or you need to just use, like, a Flash client, uh, which simulates all that stuff, I guess, to connect you to this server. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it drops you into character creation, which takes, like, an hour. Because, like, you know, you're typing raise pistol one, raise pistol one, raise pistol one uh, <laughs> over and over again. Uh, and then you have to write up a backstory and format it in this text prompt. And then you have to submit it and then they have to approve it, uh, which might take anywhere from 24 hours to shit the whole game's dead. Uh, it'll never happen. And kind of just my goal here was that, okay, anybody who's insane enough to go through all this, I feel like is worth role-playing with. <laughs> like, you have to take this shit seriously. I'm going to assume that premise was proven wrong. Not necessarily. Uh, so I applied to three MUDs, and I, I would say I've played two of them, and I've interacted with people in one of them. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's start there. So the first game I play, so there's a, a site called Mud Connector, which has a, a registry of all theoretically active muds, and I say theoretically active in the sense that you can connect to the server. <laughs> they they are still running somehow. Yes. Uh, the first, the, I, I so I started out by just first like, okay, let's let's just search by some qualities I'm looking for and pick the one that looks the best, like looks like the most fun. Uh, so I decide I'm going to skip all the, like, kind of fantasy muds that are, like, in the land of Arcacia, it has been 40 years since the Cataclysm. Click here to read the rest of the novel-length backstory we wrote. <laughs> uh, and I decided, okay, here's a game set in the Old West. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm just going to hop into this one. It's role-playing enforced. I filtered by, like, they have categories like role-playing encouraged, role-playing accepted. Role-playing enforced is the only one I gave a shit about. Uh, and it also, it's like, it says adult oriented, which I, I, I like that not because I have any particular interest in role playing anything like explicitly like R rated, but mostly just because I feel like that, that kind of should be an option. Yeah, it should, it should be an option, but optimistically, I'd say that like that speaks to a higher level of stakes that, that speaks to like being able to lose more just like. It's like, you know, I, I, I want to be able to, like, you know, lose a family member or, you know, just, like, kind of fall into depression or, you know, like, like I, I want to be able to play with these themes without worrying that, like, I'm sort of bringing down the tone. I, I feel like saying adult-oriented carries with it the optimistic assumption that that means that, you know, we will explore themes that are genuinely mature. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah. It always goes back to anime titty, and you know it. Well, I, you know, I'm not allergic to anime titty. Uh, graphically described anime titty. Oh, God. I, I, can I just get in a dig here? So all of these MMOs, like, sorry, all of these MUDs require you to write a description for your character. And all of their, like, guidelines 
are like from the romance novel uh, guide to describing a person, where it's like, you know, there's three <laughs> inches between their eyebrows, their eyes flash brown, but have a touch of green oh, just nearest to the god. pupil. Oh my god. Yeah, it's just like th- these, these, these incredibly, like, you click, you, you like, look, you type, like, look dark man, and it gives you, like, three paragraphs of exhaustive description, which is completely useless, because by the time you've started to read it, he said something, and you need to keep up with what he's reading, because that's the thing, it's an MMO where you're trying to read as things are happening, so the your ability to follow the action is based on your ability to read and parse all this text. I can't read all of this description, and I can't even really get the gist because there's so many adjectives in it. That takes me back to when I was doing form role playing back in like the early 2000s, and all those horribly <laughs> written character sheets. And it's like any editor these days will tell you that you're not really supposed to describe a character that way unless it's, you know, like a romance novel. And like kind of a pop boiler romance novel at that. Anyway. Uh, so, so going back to this Wild West game, uh, I, I spent like about two hours creating a character. Uh, and then I submitted it and then they're like, we'll get back to you in 48 hours. And then I looked at their wiki and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is really still running. And to my knowledge, I they, they haven't approved the character yet. So it's kind of like that was my first lesson is just because a mud is out there doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to find your enthusiastic player base that just always happens to keep your own insane hours and be available to role play. You know, if you want to do this thing, you're probably going to have to go to the biggest ones. Yeah. So I, I looked at so I, I, I decided not to do another term search. I just went to like their top 10 and... I picked the one that looked most interesting, which was a game called Syndome, uh, which is a cyberpunk uh, at mud. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance to any uh, avid players of Syndome out there. (laughs) So the advantage of Syndome is that you can just create a character and drop in. Uh, There's no approval process. You submit a backstory and their GMs in theory will like read it and approve it maybe, but uh, you you can just start playing uh, right away. And a lot of these mods are very serious about, like, you can only play one character, and if that character dies, you have to create a new character who has no memory of your old character. And I kind of like that, but anyway. Syndome is like that. I like the idea of kind of a cyberpunk game, which really sort of allows you to use all these, like, you know, user IM features that are useful, but that's also sort of cool and, like, it fits with the theme. Uh, and I'm, I created a character, like I, I came up with a really in-depth backstory. I hopped in and it puts you in this like courtyard area and there's like exits north, south, east, west. And I started wandering around the city and I realized this city's fucking huge. Like, Every street is, like, three different zones you need to pass through. And there's a lot of interconnected streets. And, like, you're supposed to, in theory, like, ask for directions at a map. Like, at sort of, like, a hologram at the beginning. But it didn't really, like, give me good directions. (laughs) Uh, And I went online because I just... Oh, no, you're stuck in a bad text adventure. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I went online, I, like, Googled, like, uh, you know, is there a map of the starting area? And then, like, somebody, I found a forum post where someone was posting, hey, uh, anyone mind if I make a map of the starting area? And everyone's like, no, that's in-character information. You can't post that. That's that's sharing in-character information out of character. Users have to find their way around or find the maps in-game. And I still haven't figured out where the maps are. By the way, uh, if you if you play in Love Syndrome, feel free to jump into the comments and tell me that I'm an idiot who didn't read things properly. I believe you. But there you go. Uh, I played Syndome for about three and a half hours. I never actually encountered another user. Maybe they all went to another city that's smaller and more interesting. I know that like there were users active, dozens of them, because there's like a there's like a a world chat that players can talk in in character. But the thing is, I guess. I, I'm guessing that, like, when you're a new user, like, three quarters of these chats are deliberately corrupted, and then, like, maybe that happens decreasingly often, or maybe you have to get it fixed in character, I don't know. But the point is, like, my for those three and a half hours of playing, my entire experience of other users was scrambled messages in the chat, and then the occasional not particularly well-written block of profanity or dirty jokes coming through... <laughs> Uh, as somebody role-playing their edgy cyberpunk, uh, scrub lord. Oh, by the way, uh, another sort of consequence of people writing their own, uh, physiques, I find that there's a lot of, lot of female characters running around, and every single one of them has the adjective slim somewhere in their description. You know, I don't know whether to be offended as somebody who doesn't like sexism, or somebody who, like, thinks you should buy a thesaurus. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of an intersection, Chris. It's it's intersectionality in lazy writing. You know they have websites for those now. Thesauruses, well, I mean, you don't need to buy those. That just makes my point more valid though. Like it takes 3 seconds to find a synonym. Like th- this is not high effort. So I I was looking around and I so I, I looked at their help section because at this point by the way my character's naked uh, I have nothing I have I have no money no clothes and that's that's cool like I know that like I think that there's like a place where you're in theory you can go and get clothes but I didn't figure out how to make that work uh, and I maybe I could have just asked on the out of character chat or whatever but like the one time I saw somebody use the out of character chat immediately they're like you know don't use the out of character chat unless it's important uh. So I'm like, okay, clothes so... Clothes is important. Clothes are important. So I need to make money, and the help page says, the main way you're supposed to make money is by through other players. Well, I couldn't find any other players. The other main <laughs> way you're supposed to make money... Uh, and, and by the way, I maybe I could have used the in-character chat and been like, hey, can I meet... Hey, can somebody come help me here? But that seems like a really bad idea when I'm entering... Like, in, from any role-playing perspective, when I'm entering this, like, slum full of murderers who, like... Where, like, in every street corner you stand in, there's, like, a description of, like, who's getting mugged or beaten up. It, like, happens everywhere you go, and I actually, like, just sort of out of boredom, I I tried to attack, like, the muggers, and it kept being, like, like, it'd say, like, some muggers are attacking an old granny who's calling for help, and I'd type in, like, attack muggers, or whatever the command was, I looked it up, and it's like, I don't see any muggers here. It's like, okay. <laughs> Look at the other way, are we, mud? 
the other ways you could run packages, but I couldn't find any of the NPCs that run packages. So the one thing I could eventually find was the factory. And here's how you, you want to know how you make money in the factory. Guess, guess how you make money in the factory. Working at the factory. I know, but guess what working in the factory looks like. Typing make Gidget over and over again? I don't know. Close. Folding boxes. Make it slightly worse, Chris and Alex. What would be worse than typing... I'll just, I'll just say, it involves typing the word work. What's the worst possible way you could get paid for typing the word work? A dollar every time you type the word work? What's worse than that? Um... Penny? <laughs> You're not gonna get it. You're not gonna get it. So the job pays 250 of the proto-yen currency uh, an hour. So you type work every so often so you don't get fired for an hour. Oh, man. That, if that's not how it works, then I don't know. I didn't want to clock out like before the hour was up and not get paid, but like that's I, it seemed like that has every intention. And the it, like the help page itself says you're not really supposed to do this. This is like a last ditch effort. But I mean, this was my last ditch effort. So I was I was actually sitting there for an hour typing work every fifteen minutes. No, actually, it was like every three sec. It was every ten seconds, and then once every like five minutes, and then once every ten minutes. So kudos to Syndome for accurately simulating what starting a new job feels like. So uh, after doing this for an hour, let me guess, you got out of the factory and couldn't find any closed stores. Uh, I didn't make it the whole hour, and I. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll get into that. That seems more but, reasonable. Uh, well, okay. So the other thing is this, right? Cyberpunk was really big in the '90s, right? And some of it was, and and it's like Cyberpunk is trying like a really wide-reaching exploration of like cultures and like gender politics and like sex trafficking and like you know world and like different cult different countries like non-western countries and cyberpunk works really well when it's somebody makes themselves as knowledgeable on all that stuff as possible at applying all that information syndome at times really felt like bad cyberpunk and bad cyberpunk is kind of ugly like, I kind of like I'm I'm sitting here going like, wh what did you expect? <laughs> like from this old mud that that is still popular, and you've got role playing in force, so you're going to get these horrible horrible edgy characters everywhere. I I had no reason to expect anything different. I admit that I was way too optimistic, but. I kind of want to just read something from the timeline. So I, I went to the, sure. um, I went to their webpage and they have a very in-depth timeline, which is cool. You don't need to read it or anything, but holy shit, it's really long. Uh, it's, it's like thousands and thousands of words. Uh, I, I started scrolling down it and I'm like, shit, I, this, this timeline of the dystopian future is only up to 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Like this so is a bad this is, sign. This is a cyberpunk game taking place in the far-flung future of the year 2010. 
Well, no, it takes place in like it takes place eighty three years from the present day and has consistently since it started. Oh, but the backstory starts in like the year two thousand. Uh, hang on a second. Uh, I just want to find the the entry again. It's long. Okay, here it is. Uh, 2010, August. The majority of Africa unite to form the Collective Nations of Africa, a unique economic and political union based on traditional tribal structures common to the majority of the entering nations. Within weeks, over 90% of African nations are members. Like, what the fuck does that actually mean? What common structures are actually held by 90% of African nations? Structures in what sense? And it just says, uh, based I mean, on the answer traditional like tribal structures none, common is, to the majority of the entering nations. Like, I don't know a lot it, about it, African history, but I know that there's a big difference between, like, the Kong Empire and, like, the Bantu. Yeah, so, like, this is the, like, you want to move this into real geopolitics here? These are the kind of problems that are currently... The big deal playing, in Josh Africa today, and the reason, <laughs> and the reason why Africa is having so much trouble is that, like, when the uh, European colonial empires left, uh, they kind of they did their like splitting stuff up into states. Well, they left the states the way they were when they split themselves up by themselves, and you get ended up with a lot of like different culture groups with traditional territories that are now part of these nations of that may be composed of other cultural groups that they generally didn't consider to be like part of their culture group and 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 just general like map lines fucking everything up uh as usual um which is why you have a lot of like militant warlords running things in Africa, and and obviously there are other reasons for this, uh, but but this is a huge contributing factor to why everything is fucked. Incidentally, a big huge contributing factor to why a lot of stuff in Middle East is in, in the Middle East is really fucked right now because of the way it was partitioned after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so yeah, that that is ridiculous um, as a. As a concept that, like, oh, Africa just unified, I guess. It's pretty transparent what this actually is. Yeah, what this actually is is we don't actually know much about Africa. We'd rather not research anything about Africa. So we're just going to find kind of an excuse to make Africa one big thing that we can ignore. Or one big thing that we can sort of treat as a homogenous unit so that we don't have to, like treat individual African areas with the same kind of like level of detail that we treat individual Asian states. And then it, it gets to a point where, like, you're creating a character and it has you pick... I think this is just, like, a holdover from the 90s. It, like, has you pick an ethnicity from a list. And there's, like, 50 of them. Like, there's a lot of them. Like, you know, you can, you can pick... It makes a distinction between, like, Korean and Japanese. It makes a distinction between, like, English and Irish and Scottish. Uh, but the weird thing is, I didn't really see an option, like, I didn't see many options for, like, not any one of these groups specifically. Like, there was one that was, like, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, it was, like, colonial, but, like, what? it didn't seem to make a lot of sense, and I was kind of like, well, I, I just kind of want to just play, like, an ethnically ambiguous guy, because it's a hundred years in the future of this, like, sexually depraved slum. How... With no obvious access to contraception, how how 
strict would these racial lines be exactly? And then, like, I was walking around and I passed through an area that was like sort of the Russian, uh, like, like the sort of the there's like a Russian gangs based around kind of a political religious schism. And at first, I saw the graffiti and stuff, and there was like various causes. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, that they have like this cool thing going on here. And then I turned the corner and there's like a bunch of gangsters with baseball bats and track suits beating a guy up. I'm sort of like, okay, a hundred years in the future, in like a cyberpunk slum, the Russian gangsters are still wearing fucking Adidas tracksuits? Yeah, the, Come the Russian on. mob from the 90s got teleported into the future. And like, I, you know, it's, it's like gradually the stuff is kind of building up, building up, and it's like, a lot of like the, the descriptions of female, like women are like really, like female characters are really male gazy. Like, it sort of skips to, like, the bust and, like, the hips, and then it kind of spreads out to a few other areas in which, it, with, like, a level of fidelity that, like, and I, I will say that it encourages you to, like, describe your character in every part in great detail, but just, like, I don't know. Something about it felt kind of skeezy. And what made me quit finally was I was in... I was working in the factory, and there was a television that occasionally would just, like, broadcast something, like a commercial, and that was a cool feature, and I really appreciated those most of the time. And then, like, a character came on who was, like, he's, like, a pop star, and he had, like, a spiel, which he delivered with the writer's approximation of A-V-E, which is fine. Like, it's it's legit that African-American vernacular English will still be a dialect in the future. It's a real dialect that people speak in. Sure. But it's just the way it was written, like... It was written very phonetically. Like, you know what I mean? It was transcribed like somebody wanted to make it as clear as possible that this guy isn't just speaking normal English. Oh, no. And, like, you know, just, like, sort of a lot of misspelled words. And it just, it just, it, it wasn't even that he was saying anything oh, particularly they, stereotypical. They in, like, yeah. misspelled words intentionally or just, like, that was the, the level yeah, of writing which he, that this person put into it. Yeah, like they misspelled words intentionally. Like that's that's like to to get across the the dialect sound in a way that felt really kind of creepy and gross. And, and that may not be immediate. Like that may not make a lot of sense to non-Americans, and may may not even make a lot of sense to some Americans, I guess. But there's just like there's kind of a context to that, and to like when you see African American vernacular English just sort of written out versus when you see it written in an extremely hyper phonetic way and who's doing the writing. And it just I don't know, that was it. I I just yeah. typed disconnect. That was so I was done with Syndome. Wah, wah. Like I was putting in a lot of effort to be part of this world, and finally I just asked myself, is it actually worth it? And you never encountered another person. I never encountered. Another player walked past me once, <laughs> and by the time I typed in, like, say, "Hey, Mister," uh, they were completely gone. So then I connected. Uh, so then I, I connected to Armageddon Mud, which is a fantasy game based oh, on man, Dark Sun, uh, very oh, obviously, man. which is what? like this sort of. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm going to be short with this one. Why are you doing this to yourself, Ruts? Well, I just want to say that I connected to Armageddon Mud, I submitted a character, they approved it, I got into the world, I got into the tavern, I almost immediately, I immediately found, like, a half dozen other characters who were very eager to roleplay with me, despite the fact that they clearly had shit that, that was going on, like, where they had their characters' own plots, and, like, their characters were part of a patrol route, 
but like they, they still like took time to indulge in my own dumb, I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm kind of panicking backstory. Uh, and even teach me some of the mechanics. And that was awesome. So I'm probably going to try that again. Thanks, Armageddon Mud. Thanks, Corporal Devi. Well, this terrible, horrible mess of a story suddenly had a very good ending. Uh, that does remind me of the time when I was uh, still active doing role-playing in, uh, in Star Wars Galaxies, and I would just... Randy and I, uh, Randy Johnson, the guy who played the, who was the player in the first season, spoiler warning, um, Randy and I would like go to the Moss Eisley Cantina and just hang out and wait for stuff to happen. Uh, and we like to kind of like try to apply like proper Star Wars logic to things. So I was playing an Imperial officer and he was, uh, my stormtrooper guard. Uh, at one point, and we ended up in a conversation with a Twi'lek self-professed Imperial Inquisitor, which in Star Wars, at least the before the um, the reboot of the the expanded universe continuity, um, and I think even in the the new expanded universe continuity, uh, the Empire wouldn't have non-humans in positions of power at that level so uh we i was kind of like laying into this guy trying to get him to justify like his backstory that he had probably never thought about and then like as we were talking a jedi ran through with an ignited lightsaber and then a bounty hunter came through and fucking killed him and then left and we ended up like shutting down a part of the bar for uh like as a murder site you know for you know murder investigation and then i and like other stormtroopers showed up and tried to help and and you know like cordon off this area of the the room and it was uh it was an interesting evening <laughs> You had all these onlookers, you know, also looking at and going like, oh, what's going on? Trying to get through. And you had the, the cheeky fuckers who, you know, would try to, to you know, smooth talk their way in or that kind of thing. And it, it was really interesting to see the kind of like ridiculous hijinks you could get up to by just letting random, uh, you know, just going with it when stuff happened. But how many floating chests and torsos were there? Obviously, those are the female characters, from what I understand. Um, I mean, it was a cantina, and you had, like, a whole, like, entertainer class of, like, in-game mechanics um, of, like, a character that, like, basically um, dancers, entertainers, musicians, and that in, in Star Wars Galaxies would, like, heal a uh, specific kind of mind-related ailments, basically, um, and reduce your battle fatigue, which was something that, like, accumulated with combat and stuff like that. So you would, uh, you know, you would you would take, like, fighting repeatedly would take its toll, and you would go to a cantina to, um, to cure that, and they would also give uh, buffs to um, the mind pool and stuff like that. So you had a lot of robots, Doing this because uh, Star Wars Galaxies was a game that not only encouraged you to macro, it had a built-in scripting engine, uh, you know, as a macro system. So you had a bunch of basically AFK robots that were almost all female Twi'leks in, like, 
one of three different extremely revealing uh, clothing options uh, that were constantly in the cantina um, and the occasional one that was actually a live player. That sounds about just standard Star Wars stuff. That was kind of all in the background, obviously, because they weren't participating in the role-playing. Boy, all roads lead to anime titties. They do. Man, we've been going for a while. Um, I don't think we have time to do mailbag questions, but uh, feel free to keep sending those in, and we'll try to get to them uh, next week. You can send them to spoilerwarningshow at gmail.com, and provided that we don't eat up our time doing other stuff, I will read them, and we will answer them in the most completely legitimate fashion that we know how to do. Until then, uh, this has been an episode of the Spodcast. We need a name. Someone come up with a name, please. They're just going to make it even more Spodcast. They're going to make it like Spodcast Squared or two Spodcasts high-fiving. Spodcast, he makes Spodcast face. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm going to outlaw that submission right now. <laughs> <laughs>